to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast by Skip Meetings, the podcast for curious event professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Neves, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Skip Meetings. And in this episode titled The European Perspective on Event Tech, I have the pleasure of speaking with Thorben Grosser, the Vice President of Product Marketing and Events at EventMobi. Our conversation revolves around event tech, event design, and how to run a successful event tech business in Europe. We talk about things like the current state of the event tech industry, how have events and event tech changed pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, the differences between doing business in North America and Europe, how Thorben would like to see in-person events transform in the near future, and what changes need to take place for the event industry to thrive. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the podcast, which you can find on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Event Manager Podcast. Uh, on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Torben Grosser. Torben, uh, thank you for joining us on the show. I'm just as delighted as you are. Hello. <laughs> Torben, you're with EventMobi. Uh, I know you have a new job title and I want you to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, your journey. Tell us a little bit about your journey from finding the event industry to, to your current role, if you if you will. Oh, Jesus. that's. Um... Okay, I'm trying to make this as short as possible, and but also kind of cover the important steps. So, um, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm I'm VP of uh, product marketing at EventMobi, and I've been with EventMobi for 11 years. But even before that, I kind of have been working in events for 10 years before. So it's almost been like 20 years now. Um, I grew up in Luxembourg, and I loved going to the movies. And there was this small cinema in the town next to us. And I knew the guy who ran that cinema. And he told me that they were going to shut down because nobody was coming to the movies anymore. And I was like, oh, my God, no, you can't do this because this is the only cinema I can get to by bus. I was 15. I didn't have a car. And he's like, yeah, but nobody's coming. So, you know, what are we going to do? And I told him, you know, maybe you need to put out flyers, maybe you need to put out a website and all that stuff. And he told me, yeah, I don't know how to do any of those. So tough luck. And then, you know, when you're 15, you think you can do everything. And I essentially said, well, I can do all these things. And I started creating a website. I started creating flyers and distributing them around town and started also working in that cinema um, as a projectionist, which was a beautiful job. It was still 35 millimeters film back then. And essentially, once I got into that, I started organizing short film festivals, open air film festivals, and all that stuff. And I just 
naturally gravitated towards towards events, even though I still wanted to study medicine. Uh, and then I failed getting into medical school. And... <laughs> <laughs> many great things come from failing to get into medical school and other schools, but hopefully yeah, there's a many lot of great, Many great things come from, from failure. And so I told my mom, oh, I'm just going to study chemistry for a year and then try again with medical school. And then, and I, I think I really owe this one to my mom. Um, she said, well, why don't you study something that you enjoy? And then you can try medical school next year instead, just studying something that, you know, makes sense because it may help you for medical school. And I didn't know what I enjoyed. And my mom said, well, you've been doing events all along. Maybe you can study that. And I was like, I don't know if anybody can study that, but it turns out you could study that in Scotland. And I I moved to Edinburgh to study events. And then after, after like a couple of months, I decided to not apply to medical school because I, I just enjoyed it so much. And that's been the story ever since. And so I met the CEO and founder of EventMobi while I was writing my bachelor's thesis. And I interviewed him for that. And I interviewed a bunch of other companies as well. And because the this was 2012, and so the event tech industry was just kind of coming, starting to come of age very early. And he asked me if I wanted to work for him. And I was like, I don't even have my final exam yet. And he's like, ah, you, you figure it out, you figure it out. And so I was like, okay, I'll figure it out. And yeah, you know, that back then we were 12 people. Now we're, I think, like maybe 110 or so. And that's been the story. This is how I ended up in events. Um, it just What a great story. Came naturally. Like, yeah, I love this kind of from movies to events to, to event technology. Um, yeah, I, I always wanted to work in, in film related events so film festivals and cinemas and so on but it's just it's not the greatest part of the industry to be in because it's so hard to work sustainably in anything that's related to arts so you know working for an event tech supplier worked out and i i remember that when I was studying event management, I thought, okay, I, I never want to end up in the mice industry because everybody's wearing suits and it's just so, so dull. But once I ended up there, I, I, it just changed. It's actually a really cool industry and I really enjoy it. Nice, nice to hear you say that. And yeah, my, my story is not too different in terms of the more of the music industry rather than the cinema industry and then getting into events, but, uh, but we'll save that for another day. I, I wanted to pick on, I know that you were, you know, you really headed the EventMobi European office. Mm -hmm. um, and tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and I'm particularly interested because I know a lot of US and I know EventMobi is based in Canada, so it's a little different, but US North American companies that sort of, you know, make the leap to Europe expand. And in my experience, a lot of them fail. Like it's not easy yeah. to have a European presence that actually makes sense. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Like, I, I think it was it was pretty successful and you can talk about, you know, why you're not doing that anymore if you want to, but also why do you think that that worked or works in EventMobi's case? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I mean, if you read any business book, there's a hundred thousand cases of North American companies, especially US companies trying to make it in Europe and then failing brutally. Um, there's 
a famous Walmart story. There's Disneyland that at first was a catastrophe when they opened in Paris in, I think, 92 or so. And these mistakes that these companies made are, are still being made today. So doing business in Europe, you know, in the end of the day, it's still business, but there's a lot of intricacies that are very, very different. So it really starts with the the needs that Europeans have. So if you look at any North American website, for example, they they use a lot of words like awesome, the best, industry leading, best in class, and so on. And to a lot of Europeans, these words don't mean a lot necessarily. And it's not because they they don't speak English. You can in many countries perfectly do business in English. It's just because there's a much a, a very different tone that European customers in general have. And so the first thing is that you need to adapt to that tone. The second thing that is very different is the legal compliance. So you sometimes feel that Americans have like a hakuna matata, like a no worries approach to doing things, whereas Europeans and especially Germans, we work a lot with German customers. They worry about a lot of things, including privacy, um, IT security, all these things. And so if you don't take them seriously or if you dismiss them or, or just say, don't worry, they're not, they're not gonna, they're not gonna bite. And I think the last thing that's really important is that a lot of North American companies see Europe as a big country, which it is not. It's, um, it was 28 countries. Now it's 27 countries. Again, I think the European Union alone, and then a few countries here and there. And every country works very, very differently. And so it helps having people in individual countries that kind of understand how how these people work and it's much easier for somebody for example in you know new york to work with somebody in texas than for somebody in denmark to work with somebody in spain even though geographically the distance may be the same and i think that's something that a lot of north american companies don't really get that you you need to you need to adapt to that and then one more thing that I also want to add there is that also working with staff in Europe is, is very, very different. So a lot of countries like Germany, like France, they have a very, very strong culture of workers' rights. And so you can't necessarily play the North American way of hiring and also letting people go and changing things in companies. So it's, it's a bit more slow but it's also maybe a bit more consistent. And the reason why it worked at Event Moby is, I would almost say because we didn't have any clue what we were doing. So our CEO essentially tasked me to build his office. He didn't know how to run an office in Europe. I didn't know how to run an office in Europe. I learned it on the go. And he just sometimes thought that the things that we were doing were slightly strange, but as long as we were you know, successful as an entity, he would not really interfere with that. And so I think allowing any, that would be my tip to any North American founder launching an EU operation or Europe operation is just to get somebody that has a good understanding of how things work down there and then, and then let them do their thing. And if you don't understand 
why people need, you know, five or six weeks of vacation. And that's fine. You don't have to understand that. Just just let them do their thing. Yeah, really interesting advice there. And thank you for, for being so open about it. You know, I, I heard part of it is, you know, the trust element seems like it's a really important thing. That idea of the, the language and the way you mm -hmm. describe the company and the way you do, do business. I feel like you the building of the trust is 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 different in different European countries than it is in North America. Um, you know, that how do you get an audience to, to feel like you're a company that they want to do business with? Um, and I think you're right in terms of how every country in Europe is, is quite different. And that's not always easy to understand from a sort of US or North American perspective. You, you have these like EMEA kind of markets and you're responsible for like this huge geographical region. And it's they're so different, the different countries, and there's so many different laws and regulations. It You know, if you really look into it, it's like it, no wonder it, it fails if you have the, the same policy across that whole region in many times. Yeah, and I mean that also means if you're if you're North American business, that also means that you you'll end up with more overhead and your staff cost is going to be more expensive. But if you have a product that has a margin that justifies doing that, then mm. it it can work. But you just need to rid yourself of the idea that you can do whatever you did in the US and just replicate it the same way in Europe. That's that's going to backfire immensely. And I think we saw that with a lot of our competitors coming, not only competitors, but also other companies in the event tech space coming into Europe. And then after one and a half year leaving again, because for them, it didn't seem to work, but it's also sometimes very obvious where, where the challenges and where the issues were. Yeah. You, you mentioned also that, you know, the, the holiday, but also the, the sort of, I guess, the, the social support system that most countries have in Europe that, you know, is, is much more uh, tighter or much more, there's much more support mm. available for, for staff. Do you think that that's also a, an important factor when you're looking at the sales and convincing people of, you know, why they should use product A or why they should kind of work with a company? Because the European buyers maybe have a slightly different mindset in terms of, their social security kind of frame? I'm not sure if I understand the question. Um, I guess what I'm saying that? is, um, you know, if you're, if, you know, with Nor in North America, you can lose your job very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you have this uh, very, you have to make decisions very quickly because there's a, there's a lot of pressure in Europe with most European countries having more of a social security network that you're not at, as at risk. Um, do you feel that changes the way you do business and you close business and you kind of get sales? I don't think so. So I think what you're getting at is if European buyers are generally speaking, maybe more open to taking risks because they know that they, they can't be punished. And that's actually not the case. European buyers are very much trying to control the risk in, 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 in many points. So in that way, it's not working out. Yeah, I, f I feel like, yeah, I think it's a good point. I, I, maybe it's sort of the, the inverse in a way, because there's less, um, less of a drive to take risks in a way, because you have that social security, because you're not as at risk of, of something failure, you know, the actual drive to invest in something new or to look for new solutions to something maybe less present would you say that may be one of the reasons i i'm not too sure why um 
why Europeans are that way. I mean, definitely taking risks is less encouraged in many European contexts. There's there's not this idea of um, that American dream that if you just work hard enough, you can you can become anything. Which also by now everybody knows that that's not how it works, even in North America. But yeah, I, I think there's there's just generally speaking less of a culture of you know making a fuss about things and more a culture of 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 providing very solid work in 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 a lot of places and i i think that's also one of the the things that sometimes struck us as a company that you know we have we have an office in in berlin germany and people go on decently long breaks and they finish on time they start on time but what quite often so sometimes it it seems like there's less of a willingness to put in the extra work but what quite often doesn't get seen is that these people show up at 9am and usually they take about 2 or 3 minutes to get themselves a coffee but then they go to their desk like there's there's not a lot of chatter there's not a lot of water cooler stuff going on which is very much part of a north american office culture but you come in at 9 a.m you get your coffee you sit down at your desk and you work so in the end of the day it seems like it looks like people in europe may work less but they 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 get done at least the same but also if you look at stuff like um gdp most of the time they actually get done more yeah yeah really interesting it's uh we could we could do a whole episode just on that, but I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about you you, you kind of stepped aside from that role uh, in the last in the last year or so, right? You you had mm-hmm. you were managing the whole office. Could you talk a little bit about that and kind of your reasons behind that and and what you're doing now? Yeah, for sure. So I built that office and I kind of built it up to be um, a stable a stable operation. And what happens once that you reach a certain size, managing an office becomes just a lot of admin work and paper pushing and so on. And that's not really what I'm passionate for. The other reason why I kind of step back is I'm personally, I'm a really good all-rounder. I can do everything. I'm not excellent at anything, which if you're starting a company and if you if you're growing it is is an incredibly valuable skill to have however once we reached a certain size in europe it made more sense to bring in more experts that are more focused on you know sales marketing customer experience and have them take that over because they are much better at doing what they do than i am they are more focused to what they do and so that was kind of um a good step to to change and then also over my time at event Moby, i have developed an incredible interest in product and so i wanted to focus more on the product and decide having an influence in how our product comes along and so we i tried to do that for a couple of times to kind of shift laterally within the company but then you always get pulled back into your old job and and then eventually the plan that uh, my partner and I kind of had was to just step out for a year entirely 
until everybody realizes, oh, we can actually, we're actually totally fine without Torben. We can totally do it without him, and then step step back into that new role. And I, that's that's what we've done. Okay, and um, I don't want to put words in your mouth and tell me if I'm reading it wrong. But it was there an element of of mental health of also sort of taking care of yourself in this kind of refocusing and and taking a sort of break away from from the company. You know, I wish I could say that, and I wish I could say that something something that everybody will share on LinkedIn about how my life changed and so on. But the reality is I took pretty well care of my mental health throughout most of the time at Event Moby. So I put stops in early enough. I, I learned to recognize signs of being overworked and so on. So the stepping back for a year really was more... The, the fulfillment of a dream or the fulfillment of a wish. It had less to do with, I need this now, or if not, I'm just going to fall apart completely. Okay. And and you weren't traveling during that year, I believe, right? You you were sort of remote or fully remote for, for a lot of it. Yeah. So, I mean, for a year completely, I didn't do any work whatsoever, which was incredibly nice. And then we added another half year where we worked remotely on the road from a van, which was a fun experience, which is also a really tiring experience. Um, living and working on a van is just so tough. Um, if you ever see all these van life pictures on Instagram, yeah, that's part of van life, but the part that they <laughs> don't show you is also just insane. But yeah, so um, I, I, I was away completely for a year and didn't work remotely for half a year. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, now, I wanted to jump into uh, kind of the state of event tech at the moment. You know, we're recording this 12th of July, 2022. We've just heard, um, you know, Hopin just announced some some big rounds of layoffs. We had mm -hmm. Hublo, Bizabo as well. You know, big companies in event tech losing a lot of staff, cutting headcount. Um, obviously, the the you know the downturn we're not officially in a recession yet but there's definitely an economic downturn or there's definitely some worries in that area um, i'm sometimes wondering everybody's everybody's so worried about the recession if we just turn it into a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point if the recession is <laughs> just going to happen because everybody says it's going to happen yeah, I mean, in many ways, you could you could be right. Um, you know, I wrote about this, uh, you know, writing about it a lot about sort of a, a perfect storm hitting the the event tech uh, industry. Uh, I guess just wanted to get your your impressions on that, your your view in it from from your perspective, and what you're thinking may came may come next. Yeah, that's a very tough question. I mean, over the past two years, ever since the pandemic started, we have tried to look into the future a lot about what's going to happen next. And every time we were wrong. So we kind of stopped making predictions about what's what's going to happen in the, in, the, in the future. What's happening right now, I mean, it's when I when I read the news of Hubilo or Harpin letting people go, that's that's breaking my heart. I mean, even though they are competitors, the market is so big that generally speaking, I've and that's one of the things I really like about the event tech industry. We all have pretty good relationships to each other. So seeing somebody else having having issues and having challenges is just 
is just heartbreaking. And there's, I can promise you, there's nobody popping champagne every time an article such as that comes out. Um, with Event Moby, it's a bit different because we, as a company, we never had any funding, so we never grew extremely fast. We grew fast. Uh, we once were one of the 50 fastest companies in, I think, North America or Canada or something like that. But we never grew crazy fast. And so if you grow crazy fast, the moment, the moment something in the industry or in the economic world changes, that usually causes issues. And if venture capitalists pour money into companies, they know this and they foresee this. So in, in a certain regard, while on a personal level, obviously this is extremely tragic, but if you look at how a lot of these companies work, that's kind of not too surprising because it's, 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 it's risk capital, it's venture capital. So that's what happened. And, and, and we see, we saw this in the past with companies like um, Double Dutch, for example, who came in extremely strong onto the market and then also faced similar issues. The big challenge here is to understand what's going on in the industry right now, because there's a huge, at least from my perspective, there's a huge discrepancy between what you see and what you know. So right now, if you talk to anybody that's doing work for on-site events, even, even at event mobility teams that work with the customers that have events right now, or convention centers or hotels, any of those, it's crazy. They have to turn business away. They have to turn away more business than ever. And that's not only because they may have let go staff during the pandemic that they're now missing. They genuinely have a lot of business. And then by the same time, if you look out into the future, you see that everybody is very unsure about autumn and winter. Everybody is really unsure about what's the place that virtual events are going to cover and what's the place of live events. And adding to that, obviously, is the, 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 looming, the looming recession. And that makes it really, really hard. I personally think that we're probably in for a bit of a metaphorical winter. Uh, so it's, it's going to be tough for a couple of quarters i don't know right now whether it's going to be catastrophic because at least those companies that can kind of handle both the online and the in-person side of events there's always going to be something for them uh, and as long as it's clear where we're headed as society i think we will be fine. The only thing that we um, that we're seeing is that people are more cautious in spending. So it's much more difficult right now to kind of do any crazy contracts. Um, it's still you can still do your solid work. You can still sell things and help event planners make their events better. But it's everybody's just a bit more cautious right now, and I I, I don't foresee that changing for a couple of quarters. 
Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So, I mean, Eventmo, we are one of the, you know, long-running company um, mm. coming from event apps and registration and that kind of thing. Uh, and then you have the the virtual side that comes in during the pandemic. Do you have, can you share any sort of sense of how much is still virtual in terms of your, your focus and your sales and how much is really just on the in-person side? Yeah, actually, we run these numbers regularly and we also run these numbers into the future looking at what kind of new interested prospects we have at event mobi so we kind of have an ability to look into the future at least in a, in, in a very limited scope and to me it seems that the virtual business side is probably gonna stay hovering around 20 to 25 percent unless obviously there's a new lockdown coming in in which case it will very, very fast pivot to almost 100% again. What's more interesting is what's happening to these other 75 or 80, um, 80%. Are they all in-person events or are they also hybrid events? And we actually see that the hybrid event chunk currently hovers around, I think, 15%, but it is slowly, slowly growing. So there may be a scenario where every event in the future is just going to end up being a hybrid event of some sort, which personally I believe is probably the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, it's kind of one quarter virtual events to uh, three quarters on in-person events of some sort, hybrid or not. Fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. And I think what I think is quite interesting is looking at, if we kind of just look at the in-person side of things for for a mm. moment, or at least you know the, I guess hybrid will probably be a part of this. But if we think about you know where we're at with event technology in 2019 before this this crazy thing called the COVID pandemic, and if we think about if we assume that 2023 will be largely post-pandemic, I always use post-pandemic with a pinch of salt because. We never really know what's going to happen. But if we assume... A, yeah, we a said of, this about 21 and 22 as well. Exactly. If if we assume that there's a sort of, you know, pretty strong confidence in not being forced to go virtual, how do you think events have changed? You know, are we using technology better? Is there a kind of a higher expectation of what technology can do? Or are we sort of back to exactly the same place and sort of using it in the same way? I have opinions on that question. Um, <laughs> Great. That's why we're here. <laughs> so, um, I mean, when the pandemic started, obviously everything was grim and everything was terrible and nobody knew what's, what was going to, to come from this. And I kept thinking, you know, if one thing comes from this that's positive, then it's at least that we're going to learn how to use digital tools and how to improve our events and how to put more meaning into events and like this is this is the right chance for the event 
industry to reset, realign, and come out stronger of this. Because even pre-pandemic, the events industry had a lot of issues. Um, and so that was also kind of powered by this sheer will to experiment during the pandemic. I mean, we did the craziest, what not we, our customers did the craziest things. They tried the weirdest kinds of audience engagement that worked, some of it didn't. And it was just so refreshing to see every week there was somebody that tried something new. And so I thought, okay, if we can keep up this spirit, then we, we're in for good right here. And then I, after my first big trade show after the pandemic was in North America, and I went to that trade show and it just looked the same. And I was so disappointed. And actually that, that sense of disappointment in some regards has also stayed with in-person events for now. So we see a lot of people, a lot of event organizers just picking up where they where they left things. And that's a bit disheartening, quite frankly, because we have learned so much. And I remember that before the pandemic, when we tried to talk to customers about event technology, they were really worried about, you know, maybe other attendees not being able to use software or technology that well, even though back at that stage, that was mostly not true already. And then I thought, okay, now that we all have been through the, is this on? Can you hear me? For two years, we know everybody has figured it out, but for some reason, these worries are back with event planners. So these same arguments about, oh, can they use technology? They're back, even though we saw that everybody can, not everybody, but most people can do it now. So um, I don't see a lot of change, quite frankly, but I will say this. My last hope is that right now we're kind of in, in this rebound phase where we've been deprived from in-person events for two years, and now we're going back to in-person events, and we just want to have what we always had, and it was really nice. And I hope that maybe once everybody got their fix of in-person events, we start thinking about, ah, but actually this thing worked really well with virtual events. Maybe we can incorporate that into live events because we know how to do it. So maybe right now we're just in a rebound phase and we're just jumping into what we always knew and eventually get around to putting that change into our industry. But for now, I don't see a lot of change, quite frankly. It's, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on, on quite a lot of that. Can you paint a picture of what you think you'd like to see? I mean, you know what technology is, what the technology is capable of. What would you like to see events do uh, in the kind of close future that you know is possible, but they're not doing yet? And I'm talking more about the in-person side of events. Mm -hmm. Well, what I would love everybody to consider is having a proper hybrid strategy. Because one thing that happened with virtual events when we did them, and it seems like nobody remembers this anymore, but we suddenly started attending the oddest virtual events where 
maybe they were out of our industry, they were out of our time zone, they were out of our cohort. Suddenly, we found ourselves in events that we never would have attended in person, which we can do because they are now virtual. And this is talking from an able-bodied perspective. Now, imagine what this means for people that may have disabilities or maybe people that are caring for a child, a family member or anything um, who cannot travel. For, for a lot of these people, this was really almost like a golden age because they could attend these events. And so I would have assumed that event organizers, event owners would have seen that opportunity and continued to cater for these groups when pure in-person events don't do that. So that's one thing that I really hope um, works or that that is going to come back, that we will take more care of those that cannot physically attend the event or don't want to attend the event. Because quite frankly, an event is stressful. Traveling is stressful, even, even before the entire travel chaos that we're in right now. And so it's it's just making it, yes, you're missing some parts of attending an event that are fun, but you're getting other parts back. So enabling people to do that is one thing. The other thing that I really hope is that we also consider the necessity of a lot of events. I think one thing we saw with virtual events is that we can actually teach people things online much, much better through learning management systems, podcasts, videos, all different kinds of formats where you as the learner can kind of consume content in a way you want to. And that's not really possible at on-site events because the event organizer controls the entire experience. And so I wish that events would more focus on what they're really good at which is the emotional bit and it's the networking bit and it's everything that really touches our senses and we would move learning events maybe to a more online version, A, making it more accessible for people that don't want or can't travel, but also B, traveling, especially long distance travel is big issue. And we as the events industry, we rely a lot on long distance travel and really the writing is on the wall that we shouldn't be doing that. So I think we can kind of, we could kind of mitigate that, um, that, uh, that climate crisis that we're in right now, also by reducing the number of in-person events and making the in-person events that we're doing more meaningful. Do you have, I mean, I think this, this is a fascinating topic. Do you have any examples of organizations that are doing this well? I mean, right now, everybody is still trying to figure out what they're doing. We're just out of the pandemic and we're trying to, it, it's going to take a year, one and a half year before we kind of figure out what we're going to do. And I cannot quote you with a particular example that I think this is a best practice that 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 we yeah. have seen. But, but do you, my, my, can you my maybe go into the reasons why you think you're not seeing that? Is it just too soon? Or are there barriers that, that are kind of stopping people? Well, I think the biggest barrier is that a lot of us learned how to run an in-person event. A lot of us now learned forcibly how to run an online event. 
but nobody really knows how to run a, a hybrid event or to, to, to combine these two really, really well. And we're still in an experimenting phase. But what's different from the experimenting phase during virtual is that we actually have a fallback. We have something that we've always known, which is pure in-person events. So yeah. as soon as a lot of event organizers run into challenges, they're just going to go back to, 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 to fallback events, um, which is in-person events. Uh, one per case I know pretty well personally was an organization association that ran a hybrid event a couple of months ago. And they had a lot of issues kind of capturing the video and the sound on site and, and bringing it online. And what the, the board of that association is essentially saying is, well, if you can't do it, then next year, maybe better do a pure in-person event because you know how to do that. And while I understand where this motivation is coming from, I'm 100% confident that that association learned all of their lessons this time around. So let them have another go at it and let them try because it would bring so much more value to the association. But by the same time, event planners have this pressure to get things right. And there's this freedom for experimentation that we had during the virtual time because there was nothing else we could do has kind of gone. Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating. But I mean, you know, we both attended a number of fresh conferences and other events oh, that were, were hybrid, you know, a long time ago. Lots of learnings, lots of things that worked, lots of things that didn't work. We have people that we know that have worked, you know, like Garrett and Hardy, who've worked in hybrid events essentially way before the pandemic. Yeah. And continue to do that. Yeah. But yet you mentioned that we're all still learning. What what would you say to people like that have been sort of experimenting and doing these things for for over 10 years now is it is it that that the formats that they work on only work in a specific kind of situation or is it that the industry maybe is afraid of kind of new business models or you know because you mentioned for example content being online and i think that's very valid and the, the hybrid strategy where you have a sort of longer term plan for mm -hmm. the in-person events etc but i also could see from many organizations' perspectives, that that's a gamble for them. You know, like they're feeling that people come in person to consume the content. And if you do it online, maybe they won't come or maybe the marketing is going to be very different. Are we kind of stuck here somewhere? It's It seems like it. Um, and the people you mentioned that have been doing hybrid events for now 10 years, they, honestly, these people are my heroes. And what they're doing is perfectly transferable to any event. And it's not like they're doing something that is so niche and so unique that it only works if you run an event like they do. I think the biggest challenge here is that a lot of event organizers, and this is also something, by the way, people like Garrett would say, um, probably, um, ask Garrett. <laughs> you don't want to put words in his mouth, but a lot of event organizers still don't know why they're doing events. And the, the, the challenge is if you just slap a hybrid component on an event where you don't know why you're doing it, that may go wrong because whatever you do at an event should always be in line with your event goals. Now, if you don't really have clearly defined event goals, um, then that's that's really hard to do. And guys like Root and Garrett and so on, they've been touring the planet now with their event canvas, which is 
as awesome as it is, essentially just about finding out why you're doing this event. And this question, as simple as it sounds, people are still not uh, people are still not really confident with. And I think that's one of the challenges. If you knew what your event goals were, it would be very, very apparent to how to bring in an online or hybrid component. Now, the other thing that I want to address, which grinds my gears every time I hear it, is this fear of people not attending in-person formats if there's an online format instead. There's a couple of things here to dissect. Firstly, if you do an online format and people will not attend your in-person format anymore because of that, well, that means the in-person format has issues because if your in-person format was that good, they would attend it. The second thing to note here is that, yes, I understand where this fear of cannibalization, as they always call it, comes from. And that's also a very logical conclusion at first. But if we look at it historically, um, the German Football Association, the DFB, wasn't showing football games uh, on TV, I think until the mid 90s or so, they were only showing one football game every weekend. And it was only in the mid 90s that they started doing all the football games. And the reason why they were not doing is because they were worried about empty stadiums. Once they started kind of taking the plunge and kind of showed the football games online, they sold billions in TV licenses. And also the stadiums were packed and they still are. And this is also, there's not too much research, but the research that we have on hybrid events, there's not a single hybrid event that has lost an audience over going hybrid or offering a online portion. And I understand where the fear comes from, but the data is there and the data is, you know, we obviously you can always need more data and you can always use more data, but the data is pretty clear that it's not going to happen. Yep. And so people just need to stop worrying and doing it for God's yeah, sake. I've, I'm familiar with the, the study and I, and I think the cannibalization kind of uh, fear has largely been disproven. I guess the area that I'm still stuck on in some, to some extent is the marketing angle because of the way we market in-person events, the way we market conferences, if you're then kind of saying, hey, let's consume the content online and come and network at our event, you know, even events like IMEX that are largely about networking, about mm -hmm. being there because everybody else is there, market themselves a lot around the content, the speakers that are going to be there, the things that you're going to be able to see while you're there. And so I think that there is a fear on the marketing side that I don't. I haven't seen too many events take that plunge and say, "Hey, we're not going to talk about the the people that you're going to see on stage. We're going to talk about how great it's going to be to network and how how many connections you're going to make and stuff." Yes, it's part of it, but I feel like the the attraction of the keynote speaker is still a huge part of the the marketing for a lot of these um, events. Yeah, and I mean that's totally understandable. And I I remember traveling to. I'm so I'm a bit into space travel, and the guy who was the the ground commander on the first moon landing was a keynote speaker at PCMA Convening Leaders in 2000, 
2020, I think, just before the pandemic started. And that speaker alone made me travel to that event. I mean, I, 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 I kind of had the event on my radar, but that speaker was kind of what changed my mind that I absolutely have to go to this event. And there is something about being in the same room with you know, that guy or Condoleezza Rice or Bill Clinton or any of these big keynote speakers that that come there. And yes, it's not the same watching them online. But at the same time, if we look at the, the, the TED conferences that have been essentially hybrid in a way forever, in the way that they put all the recordings online afterwards, they have they have found a good approach to to, to marketing both sides. So I I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have keynote speakers at events. Um, quite the opposite. There's you know there's also something about the energy in the room that is very unique to in-person events. If you have an amazing keynote speaker, but what I'm saying is that just because online events may not have that same energy, it doesn't make them less valuable. And I think what you're quoting is actually a perfect example of how a hybrid approach can work because yes, people are probably going to want to watch this person online speak about whatever they're talking about, but also bringing them on site is still a huge draw for the on-site event. So it, it, it works beneficial for both of these parties. One of the things where this doesn't work necessarily was is, is when you do it the other way around. So we see a lot of online conferences right now kind of trying to one-up each other with having the most spectacular keynote speaker and kind of having the most amazing and most expensive speakers. And I remember attending a conference by a software company called Notion, which is not in the event space, but they I attended their online conference mainly because one of my podcasting heroes, Ira Glass from This American Life, was doing a keynote there. And I watched and I was like, ah, this doesn't make sense. Like, why is he talking at this online event? Like, I, 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 can, I can watch Ira Glass talk somewhere else. So um, what was the, 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 the challenge is that there was a disconnect between the topic of the conference and the keynote speaker, which at an in-person event, you kind of get away with. But... <laughs> In an online event, you no longer get away with. So I think um, for for in-person events, having an amazing keynote speaker, still a big pull. But for online events, I think the audience is much, much more critical because they're not getting this excitement from being in the same room with somebody they really admire. Yeah, fascinating. And I, I really, yeah, I think that was block by block, the uh, the Notion conference, right? Yeah, it was a good conference, but I just didn't get the point of Ira Glass being there, even though I yeah. love Ira Glass, but it just didn't fit into the concept. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I think I can definitely recall other in-person events where you could say exactly the same thing for for many keynote speakers. You're like, okay, this is interesting, but I don't I don't see the relevance. Or even worse, it wasn't that interesting, and I don't see the relevance, which is a really bad sign, right? Isn't this but, the worst when you travel somewhere for a keynote speaker and then you realize, oh, they're actually not the cool person I thought they would be? <laughs> that is a a very bad impact of a, of an event. Let's hope no no events uh, do that. <laughs> so, but um. Wanted to kind of just ask you a little bit of a, an oddball question, but kind of related to what we've been talking about. Um, if you could change anything about the event industry, 
what what would you change i'm not having a stroke i'm just thinking um <laughs> <laughs> putting you on the spot but uh, you know we've been talking about so many things where there are there are challenges with the the uh, event industry so i was thinking i'm sure there's something in there that would be uh your the thing that grinds your gears the most i guess yeah so there's i i think there's two angles to this uh what i want to change and what i think we have to change and i want to start with what we have to change uh and it's the entire our industry is still really really bad when it comes to our climate footprint and I, I can see by your face that you know that you knew that I was going to say this um it's it's really frustrating to be in an industry which is in large parts built on putting people on airplanes putting them into large convention centers that have an enormous energy footprint and feeding them what to, to this day still mostly is meat so I'm not a vegetarian myself. I'm also not like super crazy fanatic in 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 a lot of regards, but it just it just we as an industry need to figure out how we can create value to the people that use our services without putting them on airplanes, without putting them into massive convention centers and without feeding them meat. And so that's the one thing that I think we as the event industry need to address and should have started addressing 20 years ago really um yeah we just need to everything that, not everything but a lot of things that our industry is built on are inherently opposed to achieving climate goals and for whatever reason we as an industry still quite often tend to replace plastic straws by glass straws and say hey we did something when really now, you know, keep your plastic straws. If you don't bought a plane for that, keep your plastic straws. So I think we need to, we need to be more honest to ourselves. And I know this is going to be difficult. And I also have no idea of how organizations such as CVBs, for example, can kind of manage this because their entire job is to get people to put other people on airplanes. And that's kind of where they, where they, where they have their strengths. But we need to stop doing that because for the foreseeable future, air travel is not going to be carbon neutral. So we need to find a way to have less travel and maybe a bit smaller events. And, you know, any event that I've seen so far that, stopped serving meat and didn't tell people nobody would notice so just you know reduce meat or at least you know you don't have to stop it well you should stop it completely but reduce it if you don't dare to stop it completely stop stop thinking that chicken for breakfast dinner and lunch is the right thing to to serve at an event i don't know we, <laughs> we need to address this climate crisis you mentioned another another issue that you would like to change if you could, right? Oh, yeah. What I wanted to change if the climate crisis wasn't the most pressing issue at our hands right now would essentially be that we as an industry need to get it into our DNA to just regularly think about our event goals, kind of tying back to what I said earlier on, because 
there's so much discussion about tools and technology and all of that and what are the right tools and the right technology to use. And all this discussion becomes redundant the moment you realize why you're having your event. Because the moment you realize why you're having your event, it becomes very obvious how to run your event. The problem is we're still not good enough at asking that question. And if we could become much better at asking that question, then that would solve a lot of issues. And, you know, there's people like uh, Ruth Janssen and Garrett Jessen and the entire event design crew that have been, as I said, traveling the planet now for a decade, trying to get people to do that. And it's getting better, but there's still, they they probably converted about 1% of the event planners. There's still Mm -hmm. 99% to do. Great. Well, hopefully we can find other ways of, of getting people to focus on, on objectives and, uh, and goals, which I think is always, is always a great thing. Torben, um, we've been almost an hour talking and I think uh, it's flown by. Um, wanted to wrap up uh, and ask you uh, for your recommendation on who we should have next on the Event Manager podcast. Oh, I get to make a recommendation. Um, that's exciting. Uh, I don't want to say the obvious people because they're probably going to end up on your podcast anyway. Somebody I would love to have and to listen to on this podcast is, do, do you know, yeah, you probably know him because he, he was in the industry like some time ago. Do, do you remember Polo Loza? Yes, the name sounds familiar. He used to work for MCI. And he was really, really big on data. And he left the events industry, I I would say, about five years ago to go into business consulting and is now doing a lot of other things. And I would love to have him kind of come back and talk about the the events industry now that he's gained some distance to it um, because he is incredibly smart. Um, and, And maybe also just while I'm at it, because I also want to balance this a bit somebody else that um people should listen to more is one of my former professors um professor rebecca finkel at queen market university in edinburgh who's a lot into social justice issues and um things like um like sexism and any kind of isms in context of events i think that's also something that we we as the industry, we still haven't had our Me Too moment, and we still need to go through the motions and discuss a lot of things that are happening or not happening at our events. And I think she would also make a fantastic guest. I now made two recommendations. Am I allowed to do that? You're absolutely allowed to do that. And uh, I will uh, contact you to, to put us in contact with these people so we can we can have them as guests. And they w- it would be my pleasure to host them both. Wonderful. Well, Theron, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating. We could probably talk for a few more hours on any of these topics, but uh, but let's let's wrap up here. I uh, appreciate uh, your time and I uh, hope you enjoyed your time here at the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it was an incredible honor to talk to you um, as always. And thank you. <laughs>